Alexia Georgiou. I'm a life coach and instructor. I'm an author and speaker. Welcome to our podcast on crisis communication. Hello and welcome to our final episode on crisis communication. Today you're going to hear the story of the Chilean Mind Rescue. Have your playbook ready to highlight the skills that you see being utilized in real time. Alexia Georgiou. I'm a life coach, speaker, and author. I provide trainings virtually and in person. Visit my website for online courses, books, and resources. I thank you for tuning in today. Shaken miners close to the entrance sued made their way out, but 33 men working deep underground were trapped beneath some of the hardest rock on the planet. Accidents in underground mines are common, but this one was unprecedented on several dimensions. The depth at which the miners were entombed, the unstable rock formation, and the mine's antiquity and notorious safety record, to name a few. Two days later, after a second rockfall blocked ventilation shafts, experts estimated the probability of locating and rescuing the missing workers alive at less than 1%. Yet on October 13th, after spending a record 69 days underground at a depth of 2,300 feet, lost 33 as the miners had come to call themselves emerged, fragile but alive. Once the last man had been winched to the surface, the rescue team held up a sign that read, Mission Cumplida, Chile. Mission accomplished, Chile. A site seen by more than a billion TV viewers. Who did they give credit to? Chile. It was a collective effort. The San Jose rescue operation was an extraordinary effort entailing leadership under enormous time pressure and involving teamwork by hundreds of people from different organizations, areas of expertise, and countries. People everywhere, including Harvard researchers, watched it unfolding with apprehension, amazement, and admiration. It wasn't long before the researchers concluded that the story had much to teach executives about leading in difficult settings. One of the researchers, Rashid, flew to San Diego soon after the miners' rescue and conducted in-depth interviews with several key players. The research became the basis of two case studies, which they have taught all around the world. Through the work of the Harvard researchers, uh, they have gained fresh insights into the role that leaders should play in time-sensitive, highly risky, uncertain, make-or-break situations. While different in detail, the challenges that the San Jose rescue team's leadership tackled resemble those that senior executives often face in today's turbulent business environment. At every turn, organizations must deal with threats to their prosperity and survival. Risks are poorly understood and countermeasures unclear. Even opportunities are difficult to decipher. The past provides little guidance about what will work in the future, and executives must learn rapidly and execute reliably under extreme 
time constraints. These factors can make situations chaotic, which is discouraging and often frightening. In such emotionally charged circumstances, most leaders feel torn. They worry. Should they be directive, taking charge and closely monitoring people? Or should they be empowering, inviting innovation, and letting many experiments bloom? The research suggests that the answer should be yes to both. The choice prevents a false, presents a false dichotomy. In complicated and rapidly evolving settings, CEOs have to command action so that they can execute efficiently and capitalize on even fleeting opportunities. But it's also essential for them and their teams to learn quickly, to keep up with developing events, and stay ahead of the competition. That will happen only if leaders foster creativity and openness, encourage exploration and invention, and facilitate cooperation across disciplines and perspectives. To meet these conflicting demands, leaders must alternate between directing action and enabling innovation. At times, they must be decisive, give instructions, and periodically close down discussions so that the team can get things done. At other times, they must create space for new ideas, encourage dissent, ask questions, promote experimentation. Leaders that lean too much towards either relentless commands or unchecked ideation do so at their own peril. So uh, there was a 17-day search to locate and contact the miners, and then a 52-day rescue, which the miners were sustained and pulled to safety. Each phase focused on a different problem. The first entailed finding the miners, and it was like finding a needle in a haystack, and they did it. The second was quickly designing and implementing a novel rescue system. To tackle both problems, the mission's leaders use the same seemingly contradictory approach, control and empower. The leaders focus on driving work forward and looking for new ideas in unlikely places. They acted quickly, yet took time to reflect. So they effectively implemented this dual approach, envision, enroll, and engage. Uh, there was one story where there was a 20-something-year-old worker, and he went up to the leader of the rescue and said, you know, I think we should use this technology from the U.S. I was reading about it. Now, he was young, and this director of the whole rescue could have just not listened and excused it, but he listened and it was a great call. He was willing to take the risk because they weren't sure if it was gonna be effective. During the San Jose rescue, Chile's political re leaders raised people's hopes and at the same time injected realism. Within hours of the accident, the countries then released a recently elected president Pinera dispatched his businessman turned mining minister, Goldborn, to assess it firsthand. The moment the president learned of the impending tragedy, the immense technical difficulties confronting the rescuers and the mining company's lack of capabilities and personnel, 
he realized that the government would have to take immediate charge of the rescue. Contacts may have played a part in the decision. His predecessor had been criticized for responding too slowly to an earthquake in February 2010. There was growing aspiration in Chile to be seen as capable of doing great things. Against key political advisors' recommendations and a significant political risk, Piñera flew to the mine site to meet a small group of family members and declare his unequivocal commitment to a rescue. His directive was clear. Bring home the miners, dead or alive, sparing no expense. Piñera thus articulated the gap between reality and hope and made a pledge to close it. So he was very realistic. We're going to get them, but I can't guarantee they'll be alive. He then turned to Chile's largest mining company for help. Its senior executives recommended Sugaret, known for his composure under pressure, to lead the rescue. A mining engineer with over 20 years experience, uh, he was had the reputation as the world's largest underground mine that Sugaret was able to successfully manage it. To help him at the San Jose site, Sugaret called on a hand-picked team of 32 managers, including two mine superintendents, a communications expert, and a psychologist in human resources management who took charge of the relational aspects of the operation. Four days after the accident, the president flew back to San Jose to introduce Sucaret to the miners' families. At the accident site, Sucaret found chaos. Hundreds of people, the missing men's relatives, other miners, health personnel, the press, Self-dispatched first responders from the industry were flooding in, seeking answers, all adding to the turmoil. He and his team cut through the confusion to establish situational awareness. A high-level understanding of critical elements of a complex environment employed by air traffic controllers, military leaders, emergency personnel. Assuming little and asking myriad questions. Sugaret held conversations with mine workers and with geologists, drilling experts. And through them, he learned that if the miners had survived the collapse and followed protocol, they would have gathered in a small refuge located approximately 2,300 feet underground. The roughly 530 square foot room held only enough provisions to feed 10 miners normally for two days and sufficient water for a month. But if the miners weren't hurt and maintained discipline and morale, they would be able to survive for a fairly long time. The danger was that they would still perish before rescuers could get to them. Sugaret offered the missing miners' families and the people of Chile a rational basis for hope without disguising the truth about the odds against them. In his first interactions with the media, he promised a determined effort, not a successful outcome. He explained his experience and expertise, his goals, and his absolute commitment to the rescue. However, Sugaret didn't shy away from describing the uncertainty and difficulties the rescuers faced. Maintaining situ situational awareness became a never-ending task as reality kept changing. At first, Sugaret thought his team could reach the trap miners by using the existing ventilation shafts and emergency tunnels to get to the lower maze of tunnels. 
the growing instability inside the mine and the secondary rockfalls that blocked the shafts quickly made this plan unworkable. The gap between the current state and the desired end had widened, and it was necessary to find a new way to bridge it. During the rescue, a brilliant idea came from a 24-year-old field engineer who believed an American company's technology could cut through the mine's hard rock faster. It became clear to Sugarette that the team could rescue the miners only by drilling a borehole that intersected the refuge or the tunnels near it. However, creating a hole large enough to admit a rescue capsule might take months. The miners would never survive that long if they didn't receive more food and water. That realization led to a conceptual breakthrough. The challenge had to be broken in two parts. The first would involve quickly drilling a small 15 centimeter in diameter shaft to locate the miners and provide them with critical supplies. The second would require drilling a shaft wide enough to extract the miners from an underground location almost two Empire State buildings deep. To be sure, the two-pronged efforts seem only remotely feasible. Drilling technology's lack of precision combined with the absence of accurate maps for the 121-year-old mine meant that there was only a slim chance of drilling all the way to the refuge in time. Still, the idea reflected an important evolution in the leader's understanding of the situation. It also allowed the rescue operation to divide its forces, freeing some to focus on the more difficult second phase even while the first was underway. This parallel processing, which became a hallmark of the operation, is actually a requirement for success in chaotic environments. With a better understanding of the available options, Sugaret immediately got his team to focus on the search operation. The group's constant brainstorming produced several plausible solutions that the team could try. For example, the search operation encompassed drilling efforts at several sites that allowed more speed and accuracy and boosted the likelihood of success. Later, the rescue operation would similarly pursue multiple sources at once, employing three different drilling systems. Plans A, B, and C in parallel. Plan A was more reliable, but far too slow for comfort. Plan B had the potential for the quickest adjustments, but its technology was untested. Plan C offered greater speed, but less precision that seemed necessary. Together, these alternative approaches formed a rational and pragmatic basis for the belief that a rescue was possible. Meanwhile, deep underground, the trapped miners confronted the physical and psychological challenges of survival. Under the calming influence of the shift supervisor, they overcame three days of confusion and conflict to restore order and hope. Threatened by limited food and deteriorating health, the miners adopted a democratic leadership structure. They allocated daily tasks and resources, establishing living and waste disposal areas, and used the lighting system to stimulate day and night. As they passed the time by sharing stories about their lives, the bonds among them deepened and they began calling themselves Los 33. In their green situation, hope focused on the possibility of rescue and on maintaining their dignity even if rescue eventually proved impossible. Okay, so what would have happened if 
they had actually reached the miners, but the miners hadn't learned how to work together. It took a lot of skill as a team. And so they had to work through some confusion and conflict, and it took them three days to get in the green zone. But can you imagine they stayed in that green zone and successfully survived? And if they had not, uh, wouldn't that have been sad if they had died? And the reason is because they couldn't work together as a team. I mean, that's the power of teamwork. Um, so they weren't afraid, uh, the president Pinera and Sugaret, to reach out to their networks for new ideas and technologies. They called on organizations such as the Chilean Navy, the United Parcel Service, and on American drilling experts previously stationed in Afghanistan. Other organizations such as NASA and MapTech, um, an Australian 3D mapping software company, volunteered to help. The ideas that poured in were vetted by an off-site team in San Diego, some 500 miles away, which ranked countless proposals in terms of feasibility and interviewed people whose ideas seemed worthy of consideration. Back at the mine site, Sugaret kept recruiting fresh expertise as the situation changed. As new specialists continued to arrive, he avoided imposing excessive hierarchy. Anxious not to insulate himself from the dynamics on the ground, he kept in constant contact with various groups, regularly highlighting the interdependencies among roles, which were clearer from his vantage point than they were to those focused on individual projects. Sugaret was also quick to exploit the emerging collaborations and leadership dynamics he observed. For example, noting the deep respect that peers accorded Veliz, Sugaret put him in charge of drilling operations during the search phase. Within a week of the accident, as many as six drilling efforts were underway, but it wasn't clear whether any of them would hit the miners' shelter. Thankfully, more ideas streamed in. One came from Philippe Matthews, a Chilean geologist who showed up at a San Jose with a new technology for measuring drilling trajectories. A gyroscope-like probe could be inserted into a drilling hole and regardless of the position of the mounted drill, find the vertical. After conducting tests, team leaders concluded that Matthew's equipment was the most accurate and consistent at measuring trajectories underground. Sugaret immediately put Matthews in charge of monitoring the accuracy of all drilling attempts and asked the other experts measuring drill profiles to leave. During the subsequent rescue phase, a brilliant idea came from a 24-year-old field engineer who worked with Driller Supply and came to San Jose on his own. He believed that an American company's cluster hammer technology could cut through the hard rock quicker than the other drills. Matthew and Veliz listened to him, felt that he might be right, and immediately took him to Sugaret. If you look at it from Sugaret's perspective, this was probably the most important job of his life. Despite my experience and age, he listened to me and asked questions and gave me a chance, said the 24-year-old Proestakis, whose drilling team would ultimately be the first to reach the miners. 
So this is a really powerful story. Uh, he came there on his own. They didn't know who he was. He had a great idea and they were willing to try it. Whenever members of the rescue effort hit roadblocks, the leaders shifted seamlessly to sustain their involvement and motivate them. They created a psychologically safe environment, never blaming anyone and always focusing on the learning generated by failure. It was a high pressure environment. When someone looked low, we would ask, hey, are you okay? Is your family okay? Why don't you take a rest? These are small things, but they help create a sense that we were there for each other, recalls Aguilar. Engagement is about action, diving in, doing the work. In ambiguous and dynamic environments, leaders drive that process through an unusual mix of discipline, execution, and rapid innovation. At the San Jose mine, the depth and size of the refuge made locating it staggeringly difficult. Boring down to a target of 2,300 feet deep and even a 5% margin of error implied the drills could end up anywhere in a base of over 40,000 square feet. As the refuge was about 530 square feet in size, the chance that any given drill hole would find it was a little over 1.25% or about one chance in 80. Their poor quality of available maps of the mine tunnels further reduced the odds. Even if the team drilled multiple boreholes, the shot-in-the-dark strategy was unlikely to succeed. To maximize the chances of success, several teams worked independently to come up with different drilling plans, as mentioned earlier. Though many drilling attempts failed, they yielded crucial information about the mine and the rock. For instance, the drillers discovered that the fallen rock had trapped water and sedimentary rocks which increased drill deviations. That would make it even more difficult to find the refuge in time. One innovation restored hope. Miners usually measure results after they finish drilling holes and reach the targeted depth. At the suggestion of the team leaders, the drillers at San Jose started taking measurements every few hours, abandoning holes that seemed to deviate too much and quickly starting over again, discouraging as that was. This short action assessment cycles minimized the time and resources spent pursuing fruitless paths and allowed corrections in almost real time. To facilitate engagement, Sugaret used an organizational design that combines centralized and decentralized components. Daily communications with families in the press and morning updates among the technical heads were tightly controlled affairs. Technical subgroup leaders who met every morning used a strict communications protocol to handle the transition between the day and the night shifts and to conduct routine maintenance. At the same time, they were allowed to independently design and conduct any test they wished. So they had autonomy, they communicated very closely with one another, with the families, with the press. Rather than creating a schedule in advance, Sugaret called short meetings as needed, especially to hold postmortems on failed tests or efforts. In the operations complex and fast-changing context, it was essential to balance an assessment of the big picture with an awareness of details that just might matter.
Although Sugarette personally executed few of the tactical steps, uh, the interviews of the Harvard researchers uncovered several instances where his skillful inquiry generated innovation by pushing thinking deeper and connecting it with the larger picture. Sugarette encouraged the team to do things quickly. Failure was inevitable. The key was to fail fast and learn fast, executing multiple ideas at once uh, because time was the scarcest resource. He kept pushing people to figure out what each misstep could teach the organization and put fresh insights into practice as the next effort got underway. Tolerance for imperfect execution is essential in dynamic situations. Few new ideas can be executed flawlessly the first time around. However, tolerance does not mean being undemanding. Leaders need to create the psychological safety to learn but integrate it with accountability and motivate people to do their best. After 17 days of drilling, the team finally discovered the trap miners. On August 22nd, the eight borehole reached a ramp in the mine about 66 feet from the shelter. For days, the trap miners had heard drills, nearing, and prepared notes, which they taped to the drill tip when it broke through. Up top, the drilling engineers thought they heard something, but even they were surprised to find the notes when they pulled out the drill bit three hours later. We are well in the shelter of the 33. Over the next 52 days, the three teams worked in parallel to extract the miners. Plan A, a slow option, used the massive Australian-built Strata 950 rig to drill and widen a circular hole. Plan B, used cluster hammer technology from an American company, Centerock, to widen existing boreholes to accommodate a rescue capsule. Plan C, drilled a wide escape shaft in a single pass with a powerful oil rig operated by the Canadian company Precision Drilling, but repeatedly suffered course deviations owing to the hardness of the rock. Meanwhile, the Chilean Navy and NASA worked on building a steel rescue capsule with retractable wheels. When the team using Plan B finally broke through to the refuge on October 9th, Plan A had drilled 85% of the required depth, Plan C 62%. Four days later, the last of the 33 miners would be hoisted to the service in the rescue capsule and reunited with his family. Uh, so that was pretty miraculous. And I love the story and I did take the time to read it because everything we're teaching today about crisis communication, this is why. This is what it could look like. Does your team need enhanced communication skills? Contact me today and I will teach the how to create the best team through listening. My email is alexia at theresilientpathway.com. That's A-L-E-X-I-A at theresilientpathway.com. Contact me anyway for a coffee chat and let's get to know each other.
we're going to conclude with some final thoughts and wrap up. So continue revising that crisis playbook with the story today. And then we will review what those elements specifically are and wrap it up. Thank you for joining.